Hey everyone, I'm Dave Alley, and this is All Things Climbing. For this episode, Luke and I sat down with Alex Honold and Maury Birdwell to talk about the work that both of them do at the Honold Foundation. In a previous life, I was a material science researcher working on various renewable energy technologies, including electrochromic windows and materials for better lithium-ion battery electrodes. In part because of this, I was really psyched to have the chance to talk to Alex and Maury, who are doing real work in a related space. I should clarify that the work the foundation supports isn't precisely the same as the benchtop research that I was doing, so I'm not an expert in the projects they underwrite. Having said that, sustainability and green energy technologies remain a major passion of mine from the days in the lab, and I always enjoy talking to people like Alex and Maury, who are working really hard to address some very urgent global problems. We conducted this interview at the outdoor retailer trade show in Denver recently, so please ignore the occasional background noise. As some of you may know, Luke and I want to use this show to give back to the climbing community we're so fond of, and so we're donating 100% of the proceeds from All Things Climbing to the Access Fund and the American Safe Climbing Association. For today's episode, we're making an exception and donating the proceeds to the Honold Foundation. Alex, Maury, and everyone else at the foundation do amazing work to promote sustainable energy access and quality of life, so please consider making a donation or spreading the word. You can also follow the Honold Foundation on Facebook and Instagram to see what they're up to, and stay tuned to this conversation to hear about how the foundation chooses its projects, how they measure success, and what their plans are for the future. We also talked to Alex about what it was like working on the upcoming film Free Solo, a documentary slated for release this fall about his groundbreaking ropeless ascent of the free rider just over a year ago. Coming up after the break. This episode is also made possible by Rhino Skin Solutions. One of the most fun things for me about making this show so far has been learning from climbers who have dedicated themselves to exploring what it takes to climb at the higher levels of the sport. A common refrain in these conversations was to consider paying active attention to skincare, a practice I was vaguely aware of but had never really seriously considered. The basic idea here is that you climb better when your skin is healthy and that there is an optimal amount of moisture in your skin that creates the greatest possible friction with the rock. These both seem obvious enough, after all you can't climb when your skin is torn up, and almost all of us use chalk to fight back against sweating and greasing off holds while we're climbing. Unpacking this a little further brought me to Rhino Skin, makers of a range of skincare products designed to keep your skin healthy, elastic, and precisely dry. After some experimentation, I settled on a combination of three Rhino products, Performance, Dry, and Recover, to keep my hands dry while I was climbing and to help them heal in between climbing days. I took this strategy on the road to Tensleep, Wyoming this summer, where after many years of trying unsuccessfully, I surprised myself by finally flashing my first 512 sport route, a super fun pitch called Left El Shinto. I cannot stress this enough, skincare matters for climbing your hardest when small factors have a large impact. To help bring these factors under your control, Rhino Skin Solutions makes products that are non-greasy, undeniably effective, and easily the best available. If you want an extra edge to see you through a difficult red point or break past a plateau, check out what's available at rhinoskinsolutions.com to stop chalking up during hard moves and start climbing harder. I also strongly advise you to bring your favorite Rhino product with you when you go see Free Solo this fall so you don't sweat through your pants, shirt, and chair while you're watching Alex Ropeless on the Freerider. There's definitely some general climbing questions in there too. Have I'm, you ever thought you were gonna die? Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever been scared? Yeah. No. So like, I'm trying to stay away from those types of questions. That's fine. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> cool. Um, uh, let's dive in. Okay. Cool. So my first question about the foundation is is more about the genesis of the project. And so 
in talking to a lot of people, it seems like climbing has a real conservationist tradition and so forth, but it's also a pastime. It's like very focused on the self. Like, I don't know how to say that in a way other than to say selfish, but it is somewhat that way. And so I'm curious, you're, you're deep in the sport back in the day, living in your van. How do you become aware of the issues that you eventually found on the foundation to address and then progress to the point where you felt passionate enough to be called to act on that stuff? I mean, it's kind of a long, long answer, but I guess that's the beauty of podcasting. You can, uh, you can go long form. Um, but so, I mean, I think that the foundation was sort of the, the confluence of several things. One was that I was reading a lot of environmental nonfiction, basically became more aware of, of climate change issues, environmental issues, environmental degradation. Um, and then combined with the fact that I was traveling more through expeditions and going to parts of the world, you know, because it's one thing to read in a book that there are a billion people living without access to power. It's another thing to actually go to places in rural Africa where, you know, and actually travel through villages where people will never see an electrical grid um, and just sort of realize that that's actually a thing and that, um, you know, people legitimately don't don't have access to power. I mean, it's like kind of hard to visualize when you grow up in California where you're like, oh, I mean, you just flip the switch and things come on. Um, and then... And then those two factors combined with the fact that uh, I was becoming more well-known as a climber, I was making more than I needed. I was living in a van and still had very low overhead, you know, like spending <laughs> yeah. like maybe 15K a year or something, but suddenly making a lot more than that. And then just a general sense of fairness. Um, the fact that I have an older sister who is working as a public school teacher and like, and she genuinely cares about the world, tries to make the world a better place whenever way she can. And like, she's very passionate. And uh, the fact that I was making you know, a lot more than her. And, you know, I could do like one commercial gig and make a year's work for her. And it's like, there's just no fairness in that, you know, like that's yeah. not the world that I want to live in. That's not the unjust, way. Yeah. yeah. It's not the way the world should be. So I'm like, that's just kind of silly. So then I sort of, you know, start the foundation and actually, I mean, and that's, I can pass it over to Mari here with, um, who basically has operated as the exec executive director of my foundation for the last five years, I guess. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I guess I would agree with you in that I think like climbing or getting in the outdoors is inherently selfish. Like it serves yourself, actually, but I kind of disagree with that actually, but well, you know, okay. but go on, go on. Well, I mean, but it's, it's fairly self-serving in terms of like me going rock climbing doesn't make anyone's lives better necessarily. But if you look at the outgrowth of like, it teaches you a lot and it broadens your perspective. And I think, you know, we're here at outdoor retailer, like this is a very conservation, like nonprofit oriented industry. So I think the evidence bears out that like it creates a community that is very focused outwardly. Like, yeah, we have to all fuel up on our own thing. But um, I think this is a community that cares a lot about affecting the world. So I think it's actually a pretty natural link that if you're invested into those things, it, in, it ends up teaching you a lot. And that's like where you hear a pivotal part of Alex's story is the trip to Chad. Like they just went climbing in Chad. That was like they were just going to do their thing. And because yeah, of mean, that. And I mean, yeah, it was a North Face expedition. It's basically a marketing trip to Chad. You know, I mean, it's very much self-serving. It's basically a company promoting its products through outdoor adventure. Right. But you know, we did legitimately go to this place that that led to the led to the foundation in some ways, and and uh, and now we've been supporting projects all over Africa in different places. And so, um, yeah, I mean, you could say that climbing is selfish, or that it's, you know, I mean, certainly a trip like that that it's, uh, you know, that you've sold out or something. But I mean, it's kind of all contributing to very positive causes, I think. Yeah. It, um, before we change the the topic, as far as like your kind of origin into more philanthropic stuff didn't you I, I was looking through your book list and you got a book from your sister specifically with yeah, like a yeah, note on it can you tell us about that yeah. um yeah it's funny you read that um i forget when but many years ago my sister gave me this little book uh called the better world shopping guide that basically ranked brands in terms of their impact on the world and uh actually it gives a bunch of different metrics and and it lays it out at the beginning on how they're evaluated and what you know 
basically just how do you minimize your impact on the world? Like, how do you be a better consumer? And uh, it actually opened my eyes to the whole idea. Like, that's a slightly more popular idea now. But, um, but eight years ago, people didn't really think about that as much. And uh, for me, it was a big deal. And, uh, and she, she signed it up for Alex, in case you ever start giving a shit. Love, Stacia. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> you know, but, um, but it actually moved oh, me enough that, uh, that I bought probably a half dozen of those books and gave them to various friends. Mostly because for me, uh, I mean, it had stuff like, it has groceries and stuff in there. And so, you know, if you're buying, if you're looking at two identical loaves of bread and they have the same price, except that one company supports, you know, child slavery in other parts of the world and the other company doesn't, you're like, well, obviously I'm going to choose the company that doesn't support child slavery. Like, done. You know, and so it made me realize that there are a lot of, just through education, there are a lot of ways that you can very subtly make the world slightly better. Right. Maybe only through education, right? Because, like, that information yeah. is so buried intentionally behind all yeah. this branding and stuff like it's impossible to walk through a grocery store and be able to look at loaves of bread and know totally that. totally and i mean it's a, intentionally obscured through marketing you know where it's like oh nature supernatural whatever but it's actually a craft product and craft is one of the more destructive corporations in the world and you're sort of like oh they put a really pretty picture of a forest on the front even though they're clear-cutting the amazon as fast as they can you're like that's that's so sad yeah <laughs> you know well, totally. behavioral change is the hardest thing to achieve in the it, possible in the world, right? Getting people to actually change their behavior without incentivizing it in some way. I mean, that's where we're at right now with Trump. Like, sure, like a lot of people think he's a monster, but like at the end of the day, they look at their paycheck and like, well, he says he's going to save my town. So even if they say, yeah, farm fresh eggs are better for the environment and they're a better product, they go and they're $5 versus two fifty for the other carton. Like more, more often well, than see, not. But, well, so that's actually a hard. I mean, I think the beauty of something like the Better World Shopping Guide is that when both sets cost the same, you know what I mean? Right. Because, yeah, I mean, I, like I wouldn't expect somebody to spend more because everybody like lives within their own constraints. The key is to, you know, within whatever you have to make the smart choice. Mm -hmm. And actually, that was one of the big things in the Better World Shopping Guide is at the beginning of the book, it lists. Um, the ways in which you can have the greatest personal impact. And at the top of the list is change your banking to uh, like a nonprofit credit union or a local credit union or like a non-national bank or basically whatever. You know, I mean, it's all ranked out and they and it's all very transparent how they, they arrive at that. But, um, but and that was eye-opening to me at the time I banked with Wells Fargo. Um, and I didn't realize that if you're banking with Wells Fargo, you're basically, they're, you know, the money that you put into the bank, they're using your money for whatever they need it for. And that means that they, as a corporation, are investing money in both sides of the political spectrum. You know, they're supporting politics on all sides. They're supporting, you know, say, Dakota Access Pipeline. I mean, that's, uh, you know, m most controversially recently. But basically, they're using your money to support all kinds of things that you personally would never support. Whereas if you put your money in a credit union, then, you know, it's staying, like, within the community. And so there are a lot of things like that where people don't think about it because they're just like, oh, I've always banked with, you know, Bank of America or whatever you know, they don't realize like what their money is actually being used for. Yeah. And that might be the closest line of connection from a person to these causes that they abhor is, is by letting banks leverage that yeah, money directly. Yeah. No, that, that's for sure. For sure. And nobody thinks about it. Nobody, you know, nobody even necessarily cares because like, it's so convenient. I have ATMs all over. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, but. Right. At what know, cost. Yeah. yeah. But, and that's like, well, and uh, you know, you have a pyramid of like, of that change where it always starts with the early adopters. I would say guys like Alex that are like, whatever, like I'll, I'll donate money or I'll buy the more expensive thing. Like I'll push the thing for it. I'll buy the Tesla when it's absurd or I'll buy the home like battery and solar kit when it's really not necessarily cost effective yet. But the big wave is that next phase that sees like a fairly fungible difference in cost and will choose the better thing. Right. And then eventually it'll drive the market in the total other direction. So where we focused on are those like 
really sensical solutions that fall at that threshold of even or even just better than, but the knowledge isn't there. Like in solar in Africa, for example, these people use kerosene lanterns that it's like smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. It's really expensive uh, in the long term. And all they need is the, they got to cover that upfront cost to get a home solar kit for a couple hundred bucks. And then it's healthier, it's cheaper overall, and it kind of sets them free economically. But a, they don't maybe have the knowledge that that product is there and what it can do, or the the capital means to make that initial investment into right. things. So, I, I guess we can get into this a little bit in a, in a moment. I am really curious about that inflection point question mm-hmm. or topic that you just brought up about how, you know, you want to target things that are on the cusp of maybe becoming more broadly adopted. Is that something that you guys fold into well, your decision making? Yeah, I mean, maybe not explicitly, but I think that I mean we've been supporting solar, and solar is very much in that place mm-hmm. where uh, it's. I mean, I think it's clearly the future and 50 years from now, everyone will be, you know, the world will be powered by solar and that's just the way things will be. But the transition to get there is, you know, fraught. Yeah. I was like, (laughs) what's the right way to say not happening quite as quickly as we want, you know, and hopefully, hopefully going faster, but we'll see, you know, yeah, I was like, I need a really good word to sum up a lot of ideas, but uh, yeah, fraught perhaps or just, yeah. I mean, there's a ton of potential, but it just needs to actually happen. Yeah. So before I get into the foundation-specific stuff, Maury, do you mind just explaining how you became involved initially? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I'll preface with Maury has this beautiful story about how we met and everything. I don't remember any of it, so it could all be lies. <laughs> but but I, have wit- I have witnesses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, yeah, so uh, I'm an attorney, and I actually first met Alex when I was in law school, um, and I was back... Yeah, this is another part I don't remember at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But carry on. Why do you yeah. say those things? are so hurtful. It's because I think I think you had hair back then. So it's, uh, this is true. Yeah. I had hair. It's basically like two different men. Good, good recovery. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So I, you know, there, there's this this climbing competition called the 24 Hours of Horseshoe Hell, which is from uh, I, I'm from that area. Like grew up there, and cl- that climbing community is sort of my original core. And so every year we would go back and do the comp, and um, like my buddy Jeremy Collins and um, some other folks and that was sort of our homecoming. And then back in 2008, I think Alex came out for the first time. And so we first got to know each other and, um, they came out early and we sort of climbed that week, saw some routes. I think it was and, maybe 2010, but yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I feel like often in the climbing community, I sort of glom to people that want to talk about other things besides climbing. For sure. And Alex was one of those people. And so we kind of connected over that. And then we spent, you know, 24 hours giving each other shit. Um, over the roots we were climbing. He would make fun of my climbing ability. I'd make fun of his lack of formal education. Uh, Anyways. And so then we just kind of become friends. We, we ended up in Europe, um, together sort of traveling with our partners together for a few weeks. Um, and then literally we were just climbing in Eldo with our buddy, Jesse, uh, back in 2011 or 12, just driving back from a cragging session and when Alex was in town, he's like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of thinking this is right after the Chad trip. And he's like, yeah, I've just kind of been thinking about trying to do more. Like I'm beyond needing to just take care of myself and like things that I want to affect in the world and, and like laying the groundwork for that now. And, um, you know, and I was like fresh out of law school and kind of looking for really cool projects. I was like, I can definitely help you get rid of money. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's all gone straight to your pocket. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And now I live in this big, beautiful house. Yeah, exactly. Um, you live in Boulder. It's such a great lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. It's really but, worked out. But at least your house has solar. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and, and I basically awesome. just, uh, like, I don't know, kept doing things with them. And eventually Alex was like, well, do you just want to run with this? And I said, absolutely. And so we spent the last five years sort of finding our way. I, I think, you know, we started with a broad mission um, with two criteria, which was environmental sustainability and improving people's lives. And we kind of engaged a handful of different things. And then this last year, sort of at the five-year mark, um, we reevaluated where we've come and where we want to go with, along with Brittany Gibbons, who is our operations director, and then Dory Tremble, who's now uh, effective, pretty much now our new executive director. Mar- Mari's been uh, promoted out of his job. Mari's now the chairman of the non-existent board. Whoa. But at some point there will be a board and he'll be the chairman. Yeah, but, nice. um, but mostly just, well, yeah, just because, I mean, over the years, you know, basically, like, you've taken on more responsibility. There's more work, and, uh, and Dory's, like, gung-ho to, to push it forward. Yeah. And so it just makes sense to sort of, like, each step into our, our next role. But Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's like the foundation has grown beyond my capacity, which is really cool. Well, like, your capacity has shrunk because you've <laughs> taken on so much other work. But, you know, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But, um, but yeah, so we reevaluated at the five-year mark, like retrospectively and proactively, and and we just looked at the the easy wins that we felt like we could really impact being a smaller organization, but which also makes us more agile. And solar was just kind of our, our obvious answer and aligned with personal passion as well. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a big part of it. It's just that that's also what I gravitate towards. Um, you know, and it feels maybe a little silly, but I mean, it's the Honnold Foundation. You know, it's mostly my money, and it's like obviously it has to be projects that I personally care about enough, and that, that that I'm passionate about. And for whatever reason, I just feel like solar really will change the world. I mean, that is the solution to so many environmental and and I wouldn't say personal, but not personal. You know, uh, societal issues. So. Sure. Yeah, it's a more versatile solution, I think, than a lot of people realize as well. Yeah. Like solar comes in so many forms, and mm-hmm. um, and there's. It's, it's not just like the rigid single, you know, crystalline panels on people's mm-hmm. roofs and stuff. And yeah. um, I mean, yeah, we I literally really support smart. projects. So that is all we've been actually installing. Okay. <laughs> but but, but you when you're talking about no. it taking over the world, you yeah, know, no, there's no, going to totally, be many totally. breeds of solar. Yeah, yeah I mean, sure. freaking windows, like solar windows totally. one day, yeah. you know, for sure. But we do support projects that range in products from like $5 lanterns to like $20,000. Yeah, home like, TV systems. Yeah, yeah totally. So. Yeah. That's awesome. I used to work on those dynamic solar windows actually back in the day, and what? yeah, I was psyched to hear that you guys were. Wait, which that. which system? I was those like dynamic and energy capture windows and stuff. Oh, cool. I was a researcher, and I'm taking a career break to be a stay-at-home dad, and now we do this podcast and we donate the funds to the ASCA and the Access. Fund. That's awesome. But it's like, dude, part, you should be doing the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, you obviously know ten times more about this than we do. I, I don't, but um, I'm like, a, I, I miss it, right? Because I feel like, to your point about feeling like you're you're living, you have more than you you need to get it. Mm, you know, mm. for yourself. And it's like, there's a part of me that, that loves coming to outdoor retail and working in the climbing mm-hmm. like industry, but it's not like the same, right? Yeah. Like there's a part of me that's like, ah, this is really great. And I love these people and I love this industry, but it's mm. not the same. It's not so, making the world a better place. Not. Totally. Um, and so anyway. I, I know I, it's, it's I interesting because like with the Honda Foundation, people have often asked, um, you know, like, oh, you take kids climbing or you like take kids outside. And I'm like, I'm all for outdoor participation, but I'm kind of like, that doesn't necessarily save the world in and of itself. You know, like, right. like I would never devote my, my money or my energy really to like promoting climbing or, or any, cause I'm like, that just doesn't have that, that big an impact. Yeah. When you have like a billion people living in poverty, you're like, it seems a little indulgent to like take kids climbing. Right. You know, yeah, it's absolutely. like, yeah. I mean, that's not just, you know, that's not, that's not the world I want to live in. Right. It's like, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, mean that, that might get there eventually. 
Like, yeah, no, totally, totally. Problem. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like, you know, triage, like, let's sort through our, our problems. I think that's a second or third order effect, though. Is Agreed. It, it creates more conscious people to our yeah, earlier I, point. I agree with that, but it's kind of like when yeah. somebody is living in abject poverty and somebody else is like, I need a hobby outdoors, you're sort of like, <laughs> well, like, there's a big mismatch there. Yeah, yeah, you're not first in line, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I don't know which one of you to, to direct this question at, but how did you decide to establish, like, a foundation, right? Because you've got these resources that you can direct to other projects. So, like, so forgive yeah, me for question, so, but why not just donate that money? Yeah, so, no, I, I thought that. And um, and certainly I could have, especially because up until now, the foundation has been mostly my own money. Um, but the idea was that to make it more public-facing in the hope that, because, I mean, really, me donating my money is nothing compared to, you know, say the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. That's my go-to example because it's so big. But I mean anything. Like every every tech entrepreneur has their own foundation, and they're they're all endowed to the order of you know hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. And I'm giving, you know, I mean we've given what like less than half a million to date type deal for sure. You know, some, something like that. But so it's half like one, yeah. No, 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 I mean well, yeah. So not uh, that much scale, in the yeah. grand scheme scheme sure. of things. But the thing that I realized that I do have is a big public reach or, a, you know, I'm highly visible. And so I was like, well, if I have any kind of if there's anything that I personally can contribute to this, it's like adding more visibility to the issues. And so I figured by doing it in a more outward facing way, like doing a public foundation, hopefully it would encourage other donations. Hopefully it would encourage other people to do the same or at least it would make it more of a thing. And, and I don't know, at least I mean, just even doing podcasts like this, you know, I enjoy having the opportunity to talk about real issues and not be doing a conversation about about fear and death and risk and like what it means to be a daredevil in the outdoors and all that kind of shit. Mm-hmm. You know, by by making a public facing foundation, I'm able to do interviews about the foundation and talk right. about issues that actually matter to the world. That's a great point. And so, you know, I kind of figured that that was what I could bring through the foundation. Speaking of the transition from the outdoor space into that foundation world, the foundation slash nonprofit sector is a massive worldwide thing right and so is there like a giant cultural change like it's got it i'm sure it has its own jargon its own culture and here you are presumably the both of you coming in with not a ton of experience in that world i mean was it hard to get your feet wet and be like okay now i'm here and i'm navigating this environment or well we probably both have different experiences i mean i think yeah alex was definitely very like fresh to it and i was fresh in some ways but yeah but you're educated as an attorney so i mean he's been schmoozing his whole life Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean in the law school i went to georgetown is like public interest oriented like they have like a public interest fund for like people that want to go into that work and they're like encouraging all that and so i had a lot of resources in that world and friends that went into advocacy like and went straight into like the obama administration and so i it was a nice resource for me to lean on having had that background um i mean i had never just like started a nonprofit and like run it, you know, out of the gate. But, um, we, between the two of us, we definitely had plenty of resources to like reach out to and, and have our footing on. Yeah. We know the right, the right people. And, and honestly, um, in some ways for me personally, it kind of doesn't matter that I had no experience in this kind of thing, because I mean, it's like we said, it's basically just me donating my money and, uh, and yeah, we've been trying to do it fairly publicly, but we don't really need to worry about it too much. You know, in some ways we've just been doing our thing. And I think it's only now that we're trying to be, uh, you know, explicitly more public oriented, trying to like, rec- yeah, raise more money and, and maybe scale up the projects a little bit. I think now is when it makes sense to be s- deeper into the nonprofit world. 
Um, but for the last five years, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's mattered that much. That's cool. I'm just imagining like a lot of times when you're, if you're dealing with grants or fundraising and so forth, there's like buzzwords that you have to. Yeah. But like, yeah, you know, but some of that stuff you don't have to hit. I mean, okay. the beauty for me coming, um, you know, being a professional athlete, I mean, people expect me to be stupid, you know? So, <laughs> so as long as I'm semi articulate and can at least be clear about what I'm trying to do and, and what I need. You know, I mean, buzzwords and industry jargon, all that stuff. I mean, that's sweet. Like, it makes you sound more inside. But if you can just say, like, here's what I'm trying to do and here's what I need, I mean, yeah. people, people respond to that. Yeah, which is which is great. I mean, that's the way you hope it works. Yeah, yeah exactly. There's like these walls that get put up around. Yeah, I mean, business jargon's the worst. Like, yeah. it's just not in my wheelhouse. You know, yeah. you're like, oh my God, like, you've never freaking sailed a boat. Like, get out of here. <laughs> exactly. If I hear internet <laughs> things one more time in my life, I'm going to snap. <laughs> but that actually touches on a on a really key point and, and one of the values that we're hoping to sort of push out with the foundation, which is that the whole perfect is the enemy of good thing. And that it's like, it's okay to not know all the answers and know the exact perfect way to do things. What's important is to try and yeah, to, to actually start doing perfect. things. Yeah. To not let perfect be the enemy of yeah. good. Like yeah. we have not like nailed everything that we've done. Like we've definitely like missed, missed the, the mark on a few things, but we just try to be honest about like, we're, we're doing our best. We're trying to do our diligence. We're trying to research and, make a difference. And I definitely see a lot of people in the world and whether it's in the nonprofit world or just business in general, they get paralyzed by fear of like, I'm not going to exactly like, I don't have a Harvard business degree or, you know, I don't work for the Gates Foundation. Point is like, get out there and like make an effort and, and learn and adjust as you go. Nobody ever does things perfectly. Like everybody makes mistakes. So it's kind of like better to go out there and make the mistake, learn from it, keep, keep working, you know, just like just go um, solo the free rider. And like, if you make a mistake, it'll be fine. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. It's like, <laughs> guys, just try again in the next life. Yeah. Hope. Do you guys have an example of something that you, you were mentioned, like not hitting everything right the first time, like something that you have learned along the way that you would go back and do differently? I mean, Angola? Yeah, I was going to say probably the clearest example is a project we supported in Angola. Um, and it was, I mean, it's kind of a complicated trip that was maybe a little bit too complicated, but there were components. Uh, it was the North Face expedition that uh, Vice uh, filmed, made a, made a film about it, and it was great. And so then we tried to incorporate the foundation, um, and basically we supported a project through B-Box, which is a British uh, company. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, I don't know, I mean, basically it's complicated, but um, I think that the, the long and short of it is that... Uh, so Angola is surprisingly more is more electrified than other countries in Africa, but it's still I forget what the number is now. Was it like fifty or sixty? It's still like largely unelectrified. The rural communities are still totally off grid, and so so there's been no interest there from from other nonprofits or, or companies working in that space because it is relatively electrified. But there's still this overwhelming need, and so we sort of saw it as an opportunity to go in there and see if we could we could contribute, even though like a for profit company wouldn't necessarily do it. Um, and so we basically financed B-Box going into that space. Um, but I think the reality is that we would have had to put a lot more money into it for B-Box to, like, establish a viable business there. Um, and I th- so I think that, um, you know, because, I mean, I think we're definitely for market-based solutions. It's better to have, uh, to demonstrate that a market works and then allow people to sell the product there and have it, have it all, you know, be independent. I think that ultimately what happened on this trip was that the systems that we, we bought and brought there basically just got, you know, donated and it wasn't enough to, to establish a viable market. It wasn't enough to like establish a thing that said, I mean, you still wind up with a bunch of families being able to power their homes. And so it's still, it's still totally positive, but it's just not what it could have been. 
but for it for it to be what it could have been that would have taken a lot more money and and just more effort we would have had to like create a business there and the, i mean that also is due to like Alex said the nature of Angola, which is, I mean, it's just a, it's a black hole in Africa. Like you ask anyone about Angola or nonprofit work there or like starting a business. And I mean, just no one knows anyone there. No one can do anything there. And the reason is because 95% of their GDP is from oil and gas. Um, and so when they broke and, and that they were in locked in civil war for 25 right. years. And so, um, and it's like hard to get visas, you know, they've been relatively restrictive about tourism. There's just not, I wouldn't say no one because I mean, people well, do go there, but it's just, uh, you know, it's a lot more opaque than other places in Africa. Very opaque. Yeah, I mean, like, there, there's not that many flights there. There's a daily flight from Houston direct <laughs> to Angola. You cannot get a yeah, ticket for, on it unless ExxonMobil gets it for you. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, they don't have like a they don't have a straightforward like tourist visa program. The only way to get one is to be sponsored by someone inside the country. And luckily, we had a contact, like the only guy that runs tours basically in Angola. And if he writes you a letter, and you apply like eight weeks in advance you can probably get a visa. That's wild. Mm-hmm. seems like an unlikely destination for an expedition. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sure. it's an oil and gas, <laughs> it's an oil and gas oligarchy. And that's why they like information is not good for them. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like neither of us, I mean, we shouldn't speak too much to Angola because <laughs> we don't totally know, but, um, but yeah, I mean, the climbing expedition was exactly what you'd expect from a climbing expedition. We went somewhere new, we climbed some new routes. The rock was pretty scrappy, but you know, we, we found some kind of cool stuff. And, uh, and the solar project, I mean, basically just wound up being a donation of solar panels, which, which is adequate. I mean, that's still, right. you know, arguably good in a lot of ways, but it's just not what it could have been. Yeah, you can be, do higher impact stuff. Yeah, yeah, actually. yeah, we, we would aspire to something better. I mean, our hope is that, you know, maybe in a couple of years, someone's like, like, can appeal to, oh, yeah, remember those systems that were actually effective and, and can use that as sort of a wedge to get in, but... So related to this, I'm really curious about how you guys choose your projects, but then assess the success or failure of those projects. Mm -hmm. And partly because there's the market and then there's the context and then there's the technical component to all of these things. Like there's there's a lot at work with what you guys are trying to support. And so, I mean, how do you come into this space and assess these technical solutions and then find the projects that you want to support and then look back and say, that's good work you're doing. Yeah. So, I mean, so evaluating projects, um, I'll start there. Part of it is always a balance of what can we get financed? What can we lump onto other trips? Like I said, part of the benefit of the foundation is that it's visible, that we can, we can highlight this work. And so, um, doing an Earth Face expedition or, or uh, like, I don't know if you know Sufferfest 2, but a film project that I did with Cedar Wright that ended on the Navajo Reservation. Like, obviously, it's very useful for us to lump these trips onto some kind of high-visibility media-type trip related to climbing. And so, you know, if a project is pretty good but also has some kind of, like, great climbing tie-in where it's, like, easy to pay for the trip, easy to get interest in the trip, then it's like, oh, even if the project isn't perfect, we're like, well, great. You know, it's, like, so easy to execute. We should definitely do that. Um, you know, conversely, if it's like a great project, but the climbing isn't, isn't so good. And then you're like, oh, well, that's fine because it's this great project. You know, it's just, you have to find the right balance between everything. Um, and then as for the technical aspects, actually, we've kind of just had the good fortune of having a friend, uh, Ted Hesser, who worked, um, for like Bloomberg clean energy finance type stuff. Uh, he was like a clean tech analyst, um, very smart man, adventure photographer as well. He's now quit his job to, uh, and he was also working in, uh, uh, 
off-grid electric, yeah, in uh, East Africa. So he's very knowledgeable about the whole space, and so he's been been very generous with his knowledge. Um, he helps us evaluate these things. Yeah, people are like, oh, how do you like eva- how do you evaluate a partner, a project partner for working in Africa? I basically just hit forward and send it to Ted and yeah. ask his opinion. <laughs> nice. So. That's good, because, I mean, even within the world where everybody agrees about these solutions, there's this very tight horse race between certain off-grid technologies Mm -hmm. like microgrids and, like, all this stuff. And do you guys feel like you have to pick winners here and say, well, this is the solution that we're going for? No, not at all. I mean, I don't don't know enough about it or or necessarily care, you know, because I feel like different solutions are tailored to different places. and, And a lot of it just has to do with what is doable. You know, like if we have a partner that thinks that this solution will work in this place and it seems reasonable, I mean, we'll at least give it a try. Particularly because in a lot of places, nobody's trying anything anyway. It's like, it's better to try something. And if it's not perfect, you know, I mean, at least you've, at least you put in some effort. I mean, how do you determine which of those really is the best solution? Like, you know, standalone off-grid projects versus microgrids versus, you know, incorporating diesel generators into a microgrid or whatever. You know I mean? Like there are tons of different ways to power a village, let's say. Um, you know, I mean, I think ultimately you just have to do them and, you know, and see what all works. So how do you look back after the fact and say that was something that we'd repeat or, or no? Currently, um, a big part of what Dory's doing as the executive director now and what we've been doing the last several months is sort of trying to establish metrics and, and establish a codified way of, of, you know, reviewing our prod, our work, um, I think that in the past, I mean, we've just looked at like, did this work, you know, because sure. um, because it's been so personal, it's easy for us just to look at it and be like, oh, that wasn't perfect. That wasn't well executed. But I think now we're trying to be more official about it. I imagine as you turn it towards like, you know, raising money and yeah, the exactly. Stuff, you need to have exactly. That yeah, yeah. So we have, we have like a, a metrics grid, which is like what we're using. And so we're, we sort of built that based off of some of our projects that have been very successful. And we said, what has made them successful? And then, you know, use that to sort of back in what we wanted our metrics to be. And so some, you know, a project in the U.S. may score differently in different areas, like, and be stronger in in some areas than like a project in Africa. Whereas there, a bigger part of that metric is um, maybe some sort of, not novelty, but like a zone that, hasn't gotten the attention, maybe because people aren't willing to step out there as much on it. Um, maybe don't they don't know, like Alex said, they don't know for sure it's the solution, so they're not willing to try it. Whereas in the U.S., there's not as many questions about what is the, you know, effective solution. And so yeah, because the U.S. is already all grid tied anyway, so yeah. it's like, oh, you just put a PV system onto a house, it ties into the grid, perfect, done. Yeah, but, but a big a big thing that's problems always is like Flint and stuff like that, where yeah. we can't get out of our yeah. own way. Yeah, there's <laughs> some big, yeah, yeah. About to say the U.S. is perfect, but in terms of the grid, it's it's yeah, pretty stable, except right. for sure. I mean, except for the freaking Navajo reservation, like uh, Northern Arizona, where we went with Silverfest too. I mean, it's pretty crazy because they're. Uh, tens of thousands of people living without access to power and that's freaking northern arizona you know you can drive 15 minutes to like fast food restaurants and you're like what the heck like why are people living off grid here it's Uh, like yeah or just these open questions about how well prepared our grid is to accept all of the incoming solar power that yeah yeah so that's something that i don't think the foundation will ever touch (laughs) we're we're never going to be a whole yeah for sure yeah yeah um so where do you guys see the foundation going do you guys have a an arc that you're trying to take it along or I mean if you're looking five ten years out mm-hmm. like, have we looked five years out, years out? I'm <laughs> like did, yeah, yeah I guess yeah. I guess we have a little yeah <laughs> yeah we did that five-year retrospective and then that was also a three and five-year strategic plan or one three and five strategic plan which obviously will adjust um it's as like the years go by, <laughs> yeah. years go by you know it's yeah. like the Mike Tyson everyone has a plan until they get hit in the face right. 
Um, I mean, we want to grow it. You know, one one of those big initiatives is to grow it beyond just Alex and his support. I mean, he's always going to be sort of the, the voice and the founder of the foundation. But like he said, the majority of the dollars have been his, but we want to grow beyond that, right? And, and make it a bit more scalable and have a bigger impact. Um, I don't know in terms of size of staff or whatnot, um, but we, we have keyed in more on not just grant giving grants, but also being more involved in some projects. I, I think, though, that in a lot of ways, the point of the foundation has always been to do the most good in the world. And like if some private donor came in and said, you know, if you if you remove your name from it, if you destroy the foundation, I'll give, you know, five hundred million dollars a year to projects wherever I'd be like, sweet, done. Yeah, Foundation's absolutely. dead. Like you yeah. do your thing. You yeah. know what I mean? Like if somebody else could do it better and get the get the work done in a better way, then I'd be like, let's do that. Yes. You know, but I mean, I think for now, the foundation is the best way that I can think of to try to have a positive impact and hopefully inspire others to do the same. Mm-hmm. And so. You know, I mean, we're open to anything. I mean, I'm open yeah, to whatever yeah. solutions like do the best work. Uh, you know, I think for now, this is this is the our answer. So yeah. for 500 million dollars, Alex will attempt to free solo El Nino. <laughs> for 500 million dollars, I will successfully free solo El Nino. <laughs> like, no question. Like, no problem. So that is an open offer to anybody yeah. listening to this podcast. <laughs> if you will donate $500 million to charity, I will solo El Cap for your private viewing pleasure with a telescope. Oh. I'm like, because I'm like, I definitely could do El Nino for five hundred million dollars. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll bring it. Uh, that's a bit more of a thing. I don't know. <laughs> that I'm not sure. Six hundred million. Six hundred million. million. Yeah. But El Nino, I'm like, yeah. I mean, fuck yeah. Fucking, I'm gonna rig lines on the whole thing and just work for a couple months. Well, because there's no, never anybody over there, so it'd be easy to rehearse on. It's like, yeah, take your time. Well, let's get to work. I'll start asking after yeah. this interview. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, start, start finding donors. I got five dollars. It's like, it's like ultimate blood sport. You're like, you sit in the meadow with your telescope <laughs> and you just watch, and while somebody shakes at the base, being like, but it's a half a billion dollars. I should do this. Think of all the lives I could possibly change. <laughs> except for my own, just yeah, cut yeah. short. Well, I was going to say, it would be quite changed, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. It was a 50% no, right. non-refundable deposit, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No, no, I think, I think I'd make it. I'm pretty sure I'd make that. Yeah, but either way. Man, can you imagine selling El Nino? It'd be pretty epic. <laughs> yeah, dude. What do you mean half a billion dollars? No, I can't. Yeah. I actually can't imagine. Yeah, but, right. Yeah. That's the correct answer. Well, see, I already, I already took that first step. I'm like, oh, okay, it's not that bad. So now, now I can think about the hard roots. <laughs> oh, my yeah. goodness. Uh, <laughs> So this this question is a little bit asked through the lens of my own experience, and I'm wondering if you're either of you, but Alex, particularly with your your thoughts going into starting the foundation, has the work with these projects and sussing out all of these things that we were just talking about, evaluating them, talking to these other people who do these work, has it changed your perspective on these issues at all? Have you do you feel differently about either the problem or the solutions or the way that the work is conducted now that you have been in that space? So I've done a handful of, of uh, installations with grid alternatives in California. And that's the perfect example of like going and physically being on uh, somebody's roof and just, you know, bolting panels on and you're like, oh, this is. Yeah. And, um, and I don't know if it's changed my perspective that much. I think if anything, it sort of highlighted the need, you know, because yeah. every time, because uh, Grid Alternatives works with low-income families and uh, and it also does job training. So basically, I'm on the roof with, you know, high school kids that are like learning how to be solar installers, basically, like this is going to be job training for them. Yeah. And, and then you see the families 
and that that you're on whom's home on whom, <laughs> on whose home you're working on yeah upon <laughs> upon whose home you're working and um and you see that i mean these are families that really do benefit from from having a smaller energy bill i mean like it's a big you know it's a big difference for them that was actually a perspective change though i remember that because andre young andre yeah exactly who was uh so one of our earlier grants to grid alternatives which is a us based very, very large, um, was to the Sacramento office for the, the operations there. And a portion of that was earmarked for this solar technician training program they did with AmeriCorps. So they would like train these high school-ish, you know, or just out of high school kids to be a solar technician and then join the solar workforce, which is growing and growing. I mean, you know, it employs more people than all of oil and gas combined. And Alex was pretty lukewarm about that aspect at first. He's like, I just want to get panels on roofs. And yeah, because it didn't have a clear environmental component. I was like, oh, job training. I mean, that's that seems so soft compared to the actual reducing carbon emissions. And then we showed up into this install and this kid, Andre, was there who was from, you know, kind of a rough and tumble um, childhood and went through this program. And now he's a solar technician. And seeing that in person. We're just like, whoa, this is awesome. And now Alex has done a few installations with him, I think. Yeah, yeah, I did another installation with Andre. Um, Actually, we did the one with him when he was in job training. And, uh... And so they were like, oh, you know, the, like these are the kids that you're supporting through this AmeriCorps program and like, you know, meet Andre. And so like he showed me, you know, he basically taught me how to do everything. So I'm just a volunteer. I'm just up on the roof being like, what do you do? And he's yeah. like walking me through it. And then I did another install the next year and Andre had finished his program, but they'd actually hired him on as a technician full time with Grid. Awesome. Because um, a lot of the kids get hired away to different companies like, say, you know, Solar City or something. But um, but they'd kept him on as, as you know, because they actually do have to do the work, too, because right. um, they always have a bunch of volunteers come out. But then they need a couple of people to actually know how to how to do it to guide the volunteers and so it was cool to come back a year later and be like oh i'm working with andre again and he's uh i think they sort of arranged that i would work with andre again so that i could like see that it's cool but um but yeah i mean it's sweet you're like oh this kid has a job like in in a in a good field you know like he's doing good work and and he has skills that he wouldn't otherwise have and you know i think that's great yeah um it definitely made me appreciate like that component of definitely yeah part of the reason i was curious is you know i i was I went back to grad school to try to just put my shoulder into this whole like sustainability, you know, solar kind of fight. And just, I was like, I'll, you know, be a researcher and I'll try to move these projects forward with this now looking back slightly naive view that if we could just get, say, solar panels to X efficiency, it would be some market clearing performance and and we would just adopt and these problems would be solved. And now through the experience. You you don't think that's true? Well, I think it's just more complex than that, I guess. Isn't it kind of true that at a certain price, it just happens? It does. Yeah. Because if it's like half the price Mm -hmm. of, of normal grid power, it's like, yeah, obviously everybody buys that immediately. Right. You know, starting with big companies, but then eventually with consumers. But things like the, I guess the pathway to getting technologies to certain performance metrics is, is often like very circuitous. And there are so many people with so many fingers and so many pies Mm -hmm. that I, I, I guess I, I now see the, you the got problem is disillusioned and became a stay-at-home dad. Yeah, yeah. You got to get back in the fight. Yeah. I'm like, I'm out, dude. Yeah. Podcasting yeah. is my life. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> That's cool. It's um I guess it's it's just it's more complex than you just have, you just have to like keep trying new solar panel designs until you find like the one, right? Yeah, maybe not the one, but I mean, I I mean it probably is true though that the right design like will will make a difference you know right. or i mean yeah it's incremental change they keep getting more efficient keep getting better but at a certain point you're like and i mean you can see that with the freaking price drop in solar and right. uh and the totally you know cents per kilowatt it's like i mean it's pretty much close to parity 
like all over. I mean, it's like it's happening. Right. You know? I mean, you can just watch the curves and be like, "Ooh, I can't wait for two more years." For, for you know, sure. Like it's, it's you know, happening. part of the part of what fuels that is like um, policy decisions to achieve mm-hmm. economies of scale. Mm-hmm. You know, and in, in the parts of the developing world, I'm sure there's all sorts of other challenges like yeah. getting local politicians to you know agree to. Ha- put a good faith effort into mm-hmm. making these things adopted and so forth. And, and at a global level, there's there's just all of these other attendant problems than just purely the technical one. It's maybe the better thing that I'm kind of Yeah, but at. so even with poor policy, it's still happening just more slowly. Yeah. You know what I mean? And in some ways, uh, you know, I mean, China's kind of leading the charge no matter what. You know, yeah. like even if the U.S. steps back and even if Europe steps back a bit, it's like it's happening regardless. Maybe it'll take a year or two longer, but right. it's like, you know, I mean, that's well, the future. Yeah, agreed. And that's a big debate in like the nonprofit space or, or just in general, right. Is like some people say, I mean, I have friends who say the only thing we're doing is policy advocacy because one, like a writer on a piece of legislation can have more impact than your dollars could ever have with doing those projects. Right. But the counter to that is that if you're advocating for policy without examples and demonstrations of efficacy, right. then you're advocating for this abstract empty concept. So, I mean, I think you need both and we've just identified like we we do policy work in our on our own time, but in terms of the foundation, we just identified actual demonstrative work yeah. as our hedgehog. Yeah. So I mean, if uh, if we want to make this podcast contentious, here we go. Let's just dive into some shit. So, I mean, so protect our winners. Perfect yeah. example of advocacy organization with snow sports athletes, like advocating about climate change, and I think they're doing important work. And I think you know, educating about climate change is important, but. I mean, they're flying all over. Like, basically, right. th- their organization has this enormous carbon footprint. And, and the athletes, I mean, winter sports athletes in general have an enormous carbon footprint. Right. And so you're basically, like, taking some of the the biggest footprints in the world and making them even bigger to advocate about climate change. And I've always felt like an organization like that should, and, I, and I, so I could be wrong about this because I don't work with Pow. And I've heard that maybe they do some kind of offset program or, or something. All, yeah, they're having their athlete summit here in a few weeks, and they're, they are purchasing offsets for the entire thing. Well, for the summit, but for I mean, if, but right. yeah, but I mean, if, I feel like the whole organization should be offset, but I feel like the whole organization should be offset through positive projects, like the sorts of things that we're trying to support, mm-hmm. like with solar or something where it's like, you're actually making the world a better place. You're helping human lives. You're, you know, you're helping communities in a way that, that offsets, you right. know, your carbon. And so basically you just have to actually do the thing, you know, it's like advocating is one thing and definitely can have huge policy implications. But at some point, the work has to get done. Yeah, and, and the, I feel like you need a combination of both so that you can... The technical solution has to be there, right? And, well, and not even the technical solution, but somebody just has to physically go out and freaking do the work, like hammer the shit on the roof or whatever, you know, like install the uh, insulation to make your home more energy efficient, whatever. I mean, there are a lot of things, like the world has to change and somebody has to actually physically do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like... I, it, I guess I, it, that's that's really what I'm driving at is like, do you not do you find yourself discouraged, but do you have you found your views on what is the most effective evolving? as you learn more about that space. Yeah, I'm not sure, actually. Um, I mean, you know, it's probably true that policy change is, is the most effective. I mean, if the U.S. doubled down on, on the Paris Accords and was like, we're doing this, we're meeting all our goals, and, like, it's happening and it's coming top down from the government, like, yeah, that's way more effective than anything that, that any foundation will ever do. Yeah. Um, that said, you know, like I said, somebody has to actually go and do the work. I mean, right like a lot of things have to change in this world. And so if you just start doing one at a time, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a finite world, you know? And so like each little thing that you do is one thing that doesn't have to get done later. Yeah. It's like, I, I think, know. well, definitely one of the, my views that has hardened and, and what Alex was talking about is 
that if you're going to advocate for something publicly to like also try to mirror it in your own life. And mm-hmm. I mean, let's be honest, like we're all white upper class males here in America. I like, myself middle class. I live in a car. Oh, that's but, you know. <laughs> Uh, no, you bought a home, actually. I know. It's, I technically do own a home, but I've still been in my van more time this year than, yeah. than the home. Um, so, I mean, the reality is that, like, our consumption is higher than anyone else in the world. Sure. Like, like, let's just acknowledge that. But at least sort of being self-aware and making those efforts, which Alex... But, I mean, yeah, the thing is, yeah, my footprint is way larger than average, but I've done the math on it. I have a sense of what it is. I've offset it through actual just straight carbon offsets to like a tree planting, rewilding type program in Europe, which I'm actually pretty excited about. Mossy Earth for anyone who's interested. But um, but then and then if you also add in what we're doing through the foundation, I'm I would argue that my personal footprint is is much lower than most because I'm trying to do quite a bit of positive to offset the negative that I'm doing. And so yeah, it's not perfect. I mean, ideally, I would live in a box and never move and you know eat only air and yeah, it'd have no impact. But you know. I'm a professional climber, I have an impact, and I'm willing to look at that, calculate it out, and be like, here's what I should do to make it better, or at least to try to improve it. And, and, and making the and attempt that's... and like being honest about it as opposed to, like Alex said, I see a lot of people in this space that they, they advocate for one thing, but then they exempt themselves personally from the same metric. Right. And, and it doesn't, it's a lot of professional athletes definitely do that. And it's like, are you really flying there for like advocacy for a day or to get a photo off for your Instagram so yeah. you can say you were involved? Yeah. And then I, I see the same thing just with like the wealthy in general, you know, they're like, um, yeah, we have to, you know, climate change, blah, blah, blah. Like, but you just fly around on a personal jet all right. the time. Like, at least take stock. Right. I mean, you know, to your point about slightly more expensive groceries, I think a lot of the people who we would hope would be the ones to buy more socially responsible things mm-hmm. see themselves as not being part of the class of people who should spend that extra money to buy them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's waking people so up out of that loop. Food pricing is actually interesting like that because food pricing as a percentage of our income is at the lowest that it's ever been. Um, so, or like people in the U.S. right now spend less on food than they ever have basically as a percentage. And, um, and so people are like, oh, groceries are too expensive. The price of bread's gone up, the price of milk's gone up. And you're like, yeah, it's gone up. But relative to your income, it's mm-hmm. the lowest that it's ever been. You know, I mean, if people were spending the same percentage of their income as they were in the 1930s, you know, I mean, they'd be eating only the nicest food, like fresh organic vegetables and stuff. And I mean, it would be much closer to how you kind of hope the, the world should be. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. Yeah, there are a lot of things like that where people are like, oh, I can never spend the money. And you're kind of like, right. if you look at the breakdown of, of the U.S. income over the last 100 years, I mean, people spend way more on leisure and recreation stuff now than, than they did in right. the past. And sometimes you know? it's like, well, if you can't spend the money, then nobody can spend the money. That's yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Come on. Um, what do you say to people who have an interest in getting involved in the foundation, either with you know time or money or whatever? I mean, do you guys definitely do give us your money. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> do you guys have like a pathway set up for donations? And- yeah, but so anybody interested um, should just check out the foundation, HanaFoundation.org. We're better equipped to accept donations of money than time. Okay. Um, and people often ask like, how can we help? And, uh, and I really appreciate the sentiment, but the reality is we're just not running that many projects. But I think that the best way if somebody has the time, they should reach out to some of our partners like Grid Alternatives. Because going to a grid install is freaking awesome. It's, uh, it feels great. It's kind of amazing. It's really educational. And actually, for somebody like me, uh, I have basically no skills. Like, I don't know how to use power tools. I don't, I don't do anything, you know. Like, I don't know how to use my hands except to hold small holds. And, uh, and so it's been actually really great doing grid on installs because you're up on somebody's roof. I get to like learn how to use all this stuff and like learn how to freaking lay rails onto somebody's roof. And, uh, 
and it's kind of a nice way to learn because uh, the, the the homeowner's getting it for free, so it doesn't really matter if you freaking shoot the nail gun like nine times in the wrong place because it's like, well, you know, as long as you cock all the holes and figure it all out, like, it's fine. Because, uh, nice you know, forgiving I mean, environment. Yeah, it's a very forgiving environment. It's a good place to learn. <laughs> Um, but no, but honestly, it it is really beautiful to see the community come out to support, you know, families in need and, uh, and for them to wind up with, with clean energy that way. I mean, it's awesome. I mean, on that same note of us being better equipped to accept money over time, the, the one thing we do not have is a lot of connections. And so if people are just like, man, I have time to give and I want to give it like definitely reach out and we might know people that are able to utilize that light grid alternatives yeah, and like provide you, you resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hopefully guide you towards the best place to, to help. Because I mean, the, you know, I mean, there's so much need in the world. Right. It's like people just need to be connected with the right organizations. And I mean, I think, yeah, just, I mean, it feels good to go do any of that work. It's like you go do one install and you're like, that was awesome. Like yeah. I should do this more often. Does uh, So because of that and that effect and the time that you spent in, in this space, does that turn the volume down on the other stuff that you guys do like your you know the climbing that you do for yourselves or does does the work on these really urgent problems and really helping people's serious quality of life needs make climbing feel smaller i mean to me no okay. <laughs> i mean uh, no i mean so the foundation has been steadily increasing uh it has been a steadily increasing presence in my life for the last five years it's like more and more important more of my time more more energy but that said, I mean, I'm, I'm a freaking climber. I love rock climbing. Yeah. Um, I go climbing a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's that will still be my priority for the foreseeable future. Cool. You know, I mean, I mean yeah. you haven't done anything notable in a few weeks. <laughs> Yo, I've been mostly gym climbing, so, you know. But, I mean, oh, I, I almost sent the blue route. I mean, that's cool. <laughs> but Maybe next time. I, I would have yeah. a different sentiment probably, but that's just different because yeah. I'm, I'm not going to change the world by, like, I, I, I want to have a positive impact on the world and I'm not going to do it through rock climbing. I really enjoy it and I learn a lot from it and I connect to an amazing community and like, you know, meet people like Alex and become close to that. But no, it, yeah, it turns down that volume in that, like I have no interest in quitting my life and moving into a van and climbing full time. Like that sounds totally empty to me because I won't do anything groundbreaking by doing that. Like the things that I can do and I won't do anything groundbreaking in general in the world, but I know that at least the best, yeah. The closest you'll come is through, yeah. Yeah. It's through my, my projects with like the Hana Foundation or like Meridian Line and stuff like that where I'm getting paradox boards. Paradox boards. Especially with your unwillingness to solo El Nino, I mean. Yeah, do you I mean, even I just have not, yeah. Why not you $500 million? I will, try. I will also try. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come yeah. on. That's no, like a lot about. of money. I'll say, Alex, I would love you to do that, but I might take the money and give it to Maury and watch him try. <laughs> no, no, but he would die. It'd be horrible. <laughs> you have $500 million? I know, I don't know. I, I know they say you can't value a life, but you can. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. apparently you can. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, I, I would be interested in that. Raise some big ethical questions, but I would go there for sure. Yeah. I'm willing to grapple with those <laughs> yeah. questions. Have all the dialogue yeah. after the fact. Yeah. 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 So I want to ask you a couple uh, questions about the films you have coming out this fall. Oh, yeah. So you've got two. Is that right? You've got No, no. Free Solo is just it's. Uh, so the film Free Solo is coming out this fall. It's a feature documentary about about me free soloing all cap. OK. Um, I guess I was thinking, do you guys have a short in the real rock about the nose? No, that's oh. next year. Oh, next they filmed year. it this year, but it's for the year after. And a lot of that has to do with contractual stuff because gotcha. free solo, uh, I'm basically not allowed to be in other films for a while and whatever. But, um, but also because I think they already have their, their real rock lineup okay. sort of set for this year Yeah. because I mean, it'll be out in a couple months. Like they need to finish the movies, yeah, you know? Yeah. 
totally. And considering we didn't even do the speed record till last month, it would have yeah. been, um, I mean, it would have been possible, but I think it'd be hard for them to like crank it out that fast. Yeah, that makes before. sense. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. <laughs> yeah. So is, is Free Solo the, the biggest film project you've worked on before? Obviously, I mean, you've filmed a lot. Free but. Solo is the biggest film project I've worked on. I mean, Free Solo is the biggest film project that's ever been done in the climbing space. I mean, yeah. it's fully like going to movie theaters. It's yeah. like, it's a thing. Um, though, actually, I'll just, just for courtesy, I'll mention that uh, the Dawnwall film is also going to theaters this fall, um, sort of just through crazy timing and whatever. But, um, but so Tommy's movie about the Dawnwall right. um, comes out in September, I think, in theaters. And then my film, Free Solo, um, I don't know if that's public, actually. I think that's public. And, uh, and then my film comes out in theaters in October. Yeah. And, and part of the reason that Free Solo is a large project is because it's springboarded off the success of Maru. Is that accurate? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Chai Vassar Haley and Jimmy Chin, who were married co-directors, um, worked on Maru together. Uh, Maru did surprisingly well, like audience award at Sundance and um, uh, shortlisted for the Oscars. And, you know, it's, it's a great film. I mean, I, I'm sure yeah, most climbers have seen Maru. And so um, they were approached after the success of that film uh, with offers to do another film. And then they approached me about doing a feature. And, uh, you know, I was obviously open to it. And then I was like, if anybody's going to make a film, it's going to be about El Cap. It's the only thing I care about. It's the only thing worth a feature film. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like an objective that's worthy of being on a big screen. So with A such- screen big enough to show how big the wall is. <laughs> you know, it's like, a 3,000 foot yeah, screen. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, that'd be awesome. Life size. We did joke about that, that for the Yosemite <laughs> facelift next year. We're just going to project the movie right on El Cap. Oh, that'd be incredible. It'd be so epic. <laughs> Um, but not really in, in, in the spirit of the park service. They would be bummed, but, you know, right. that's all right. Yeah, yeah. So experientially for you on your end, was that different than a lot of the films you've been on in the past? I mean, it, I imagine the production side yeah, of things so is Yeah, so totally different. different. Yeah, the okay. experience was just a completely different scale. Yeah. Um, I mean, most climbing films um, or, like, short brand pieces, you just go out and get the shots. You're like, okay, yeah. here's what we need. You just go out, you get them, and it's done. This was, like, a legitimate documentary film project where yeah. they just filmed with me all the freaking time forever. For how long? And then for, like, a year and a half, you know, almost two years, kind of. It's a long time. Well, um, for, no, it's, for perspective, I filmed on it for a week and a half, and it's none of that's in there. Was there certainty about the outcome, I guess, of you doing this free solo, or was there a, this possibility that, you know, maybe you end up not attempting the climb for reasons related to conditions. Yeah. Or, so for, or for the first half of the project, there was uncertainty. Like, I don't know if this is possible. And then, um, I don't want to give spoilers for the film, but it is all sort of public knowledge cause it all happened. But, um, but so I sort of attempted the free solo in, in the fall, um, and bailed, uh, basically like went up and then started French freeing, like pulled on some bolts, uh, cheated, came down and was like, okay, that wasn't, wasn't my day. Um, but as soon as I had my failed attempt, I knew that it was possible because I was like, that was pretty freaking close, you know, like I'm basically almost there. And so then for the final six months of the project or so, it was just sort of this, you know, inevitability, like I okay. will do this. Let's just see when it happens. Yeah. That must've taken a lot of pressure off the project. I imagine I was curious if the project either, if there was pressure in one direction or the other, either the project on you and now you feel excess pressure to, you know, execute this. Well, so, so part of the reason I wanted to do the film, part of the reason that I agreed to do the film was because I kind of wanted some pressure, you know, like, I mean, I'd been dreaming about selling El Cap for uh, eight years by the time I actually did it. And, you know, the first six years of that, I've been dreaming about it. I'd show up, I'd look at the wall and be like, hell no, that's like, it's so <laughs> scary. Like, it's so big, yeah. like that's messed up. Yeah. And so at some point I realized that I actually needed to do a bunch of work, you know, like I needed to put the effort in. 
And so I kind of wanted to be held accountable a little bit. Like I wanted a little extra pressure, you know, the same way that folks tell all their friends that they're going to run a marathon and then they're yes. like, oh shit, I better start training. Yeah, yeah. You know, exactly. it's like, it's yeah. And so, damn it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, I definitely didn't solo cap just for the grams, but, um, but you know, I mean, it made sense to like, like, so I'd been, it'd been a very closely held private you know, sort of secret goal for years and years. I hadn't talked to anybody about it. And at some point you have to tell your friends about it. You have to, if nothing else, just to get some expertise, you know, to ask people like Tommy, like, well, what would you do to train? Or how do you feel? I talked to Uli Steck quite a bit about training, like, cause he basically onsite at the Golden Gate uh, many years ago. And, uh, you know, I was like, oh, how did you train for that? And what were you into? It's just like good to be able to talk to your friends and like get help. Yeah, there was, I think there was also a tension between like the overall pressure, the positive pressure that Alex says of like, the support to do it and then also like some of us that were close to him ensuring that there wasn't like sure. I- immediate pressure to do it on someone else's terms yeah and i mean i can imagine it's easy to see the bleed through happening right. a little yeah, bit i guess the thing is though that i knew that ultimately it's always my choice you know it's, it's my body my choice you know <laughs> yeah, yeah i'm like no matter how many people tell me to go climb some wall, like I'm never going to climb, you know? Yeah. And, and I knew that if there was too much pressure with the filming, I could just freaking dip out and go do it myself and not tell anybody, Yeah. you know? But the thing is, I just knew that that would be disrespectful to them and their time and the amount of effort they put into making a good film. And ultimately I think the film is way better for it. Like the film is stronger for sure. Yeah. I mean, hopefully you guys will see it and it's, uh, I mean, I think it's pretty freaking good. Oh, I can't, you know I mean? That. It's weird cause it's got a full, hour of just me and backstory and it's like weird to watch yourself but then the actual 20 minutes of free soloing all cap is freaking awesome it's yeah. like so good <laughs> oh man I it's uh I the climbing is yeah it's looks. it's really really good yeah for sure i kind of hope it winds up on imax somehow or something just so that like the it's like it, wrap around and yeah i mean just imagine freaking l cap on a big big screen it's so awesome yeah oh, i mean of any film that that does justice, you know, like it just yeah. really captures the experience well. That's awesome. But, I mean, yeah, first of all, congratulations. Oh, on yeah, thanks, thanks. Together, yeah. like, that's it's yeah. cool to see that stuff realized on that large format because mm-hmm. there's, there's few opportunities I think, yeah. to do that. No, totally. I mean, I, you know, I would have been very happy no matter what to just free solo cap. Right. But if I'm ever going to make any kind of real film, it may as well be on the most beautiful wall on earth. You know, like this is the wall that deserves a good film. Like yeah. had I sold it all cap and then gone out back afterward and shot some like seven minute brand piece, I'd be like, <laughs> oh, it's a bit of a missed opportunity. Like yeah. that's lame. Yes. You know, like this is the most like, I mean. I don't want to say this is the greatest climbing ever done because that sounds really douchey. But I mean, that is, those are the terms in which I thought of it. You know, yeah. like I had built it up in my head. It's like, this is the coolest thing that I can imagine. Yeah. And so it's cool to like document that in a, in a powerful way. And it's super fortunate that that came together. I imagine like the opportunity for, for Jimmy to mm-hmm. know, bring these resources to bear on that at a time mm-hmm. when you were getting ready to do it and all that stuff. I mean, that's, that's not, yeah, it worked out well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so a couple a couple general climbing questions for you, um, related to free soloing it. You you said after that that you considered free soloing on cap to be like the, um, I guess the ultimate free solo, mm-hmm. and I think that that's that's a very fair assessment in the sense that if you were to say go as free solo El Nino, it's easier to see that as an incremental step forward, even if it would be much harder than the mm-hmm. free rider. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to imagine what the next um, paradigm shift would be, and so does that feel like? Is there like a chapter that closes for you as a result and you shift to yeah. other climbing oriented goals? I mean, that's yeah, on it, honestly, the, the free soloing chapter may have closed with, with El Cap. It's hard to say because I mean, I could think of link ups. I can think of some other things like, I don't know. I mean, obviously I like soloing, um, but 
Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine something bigger than El Cap. Though yeah. it's funny because free soloing the triple is like an obvious thing in Yosemite. <laughs> um, you know, but it, uh, yeah, I know it's totally messed up though. Yeah. Um, and and that might be saved for later generations, but the one also half dome doesn't go free anymore since the freaking thing fell off. Right. Um, so, you know, there's some question marks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it, as, as absurd as it might sound, I remember one of our friends on Facebook like that day just posted Alex Honnold just won rock climbing. Yeah. And it's like, I'm sure someone like the future will see the next step and the next paradigm shift. But yeah. Yeah, it's hard frankly, I can't imagine it right now. Right. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's hard to imagine it right now. Right. But and it's maybe, funny because I get so many interview questions like, what do you do next? And I'm like, I don't know. I freaking go climb in the gym and just have yeah. fun and like, chill. <laughs> I mean, that like, sounds amazing. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's nice. Um, and I mean, you know, I freaking went to Antarctica this year. I like did the speed record on the nose, which I was actually pretty proud of too. And um, I've been sport climbing r- relatively well for me. And so, you know, it's all like, that's all sort of normal. It's funny because those are all things that would be enough to maintain me as a professional climber right but it takes something like the free rider to you know have like something outside of climbing i guess i was so interested in that because i can't think of a parallel elsewhere in climbing where somebody has achieves like this major goal and everyone's like that's it it's done you know like when adam andre climbs 515 d you know the reaction is not well that was crazy there's nothing harder did you did you you watch the video of him climbing silence yeah like it's so lame and just arbitrarily ends at this random bolt at a lip and you're like you didn't go to the top of the cave you i mean so for climbers it's amazing like why do you climb 15d and it looks crazy and it's so hard yeah but to the average person they'd be like why do you arbitrarily stop halfway out this huge thing like it doesn't even make sense i mean that's kind of the that's that's the beauty of free soloing is you're like that guy walked up to the bottom he climbed to the top he was all by himself and it looked fucked up yeah (laughs) and i'm still sweating yeah exactly (laughs) like oh and i just had a small stroke or maybe a seizure (laughs) i'm not sure but either way i need to go home and like (laughs) lay down in the bathtub for a while or something you know yeah i mean it's just such a different deal i mean you watch you watch the adam's film silence and no disrespect to adam because he's an you know he's the best climber in the world um but you're sort of like oh there's this dude swinging around upside down screaming it's all sort of unclear what he's doing and then he just randomly stops and comes down you're like that didn't make any sense you know although john sherman did give you shit for not doing the sit start actually actually, (laughs) well no i started sitting down on the ground putting my shoes on and then i climbed the whole wall it's like isn't isn't that the sit all right we'll call him we'll call him later (laughs) yeah i'm like yeah i just walked across the ledge where i put my shoes on to the you know it's like that's still the sit start well he reserves the right to do the sit start and rename the route so (laughs) he should he should (laughs) I wonder what he'd call it. He'd call it the Verm Rider. Yeah, Yeah. totally. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So um, there's a couple like broader zooming out a little bit questions. But when we were talking earlier about the rise of gyms before and the rise of guide services being available to give as like vectors to introduce people to the sport, either in terms of instruction or whatever, and people reaching really high levels of performance without ever really going out on their own. Mm -hmm. Do you feel as though the move away from mentor protege or sort of like a oral tradition of climbing is going to have these downstream effects in the sport that are so maybe? So I very much disagree with that because I literally am that kid. You know, I was climbing 513 in the gym before I ever went outside. Yeah. Like I am, like everyone complains about like, oh, Jim Gumby's going outside. I'm like, I'm the freaking Jim Gumby. Yeah. You know, and now I have a foundation devoted to environmental issues. I freaking have, you know, expeditioned all over the world. Like, you know, like I am the gym gummy and I'm sort of like, I think that all other gym gummies should get the same opportunity that I've had where they go out, they learn, they get better at it. And then they care about the outdoors. Definitely. I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> oh, agreed. You know? Um, and, and I mean, I grew up sort of in a vacuum in Sacramento. Like there wasn't any mentorship. There weren't, weren't like the old trad dudes taking me out and teaching me. I mean, there were some people that took me outside, but 
but it just wasn't, you know, it's not like growing up in Yosemite or something. Right. Or it's not like Tommy growing up, like climbing the diamond at age seven or whatever, at age 10, I think. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Tommy's dad was like taking him up mountains when he was three. Yeah. And like, that's a different level of, of outdoor. Oh, man, uh, for sure. Outdoor teaching. But eventually those people are going to be in the minority, right? If they are not already. Which the teacher folks or people like Tommy? Like, people like Tommy, right? And yeah, I think but, that that's but my point is that Tommy and I have wound up in the same place, basically, except right. that he's still a lot stronger, even though he's missing his freaking finger. <laughs> but, uh, you know. Best adaptive climber in the world. <laughs> I, I, I call him the world's best handicap climber all the time. <laughs> but um, anyway, the, you know, my point is just that we came from very different places and wound up at the, you know, at the same destination sort yeah. of. And so I'm like, I think that is yeah. fair for everybody. Totally. You know, like, so maybe not necessarily cause yeah, impacts to the sport. Yeah, I don't think that there's any real downside from people in the gym. Yeah. Oh, know, yeah. I, I guess not necessarily even downside. Just, you know, is it a, does it become a different, you know, collection of... I mean, it might. I mean, so climbing, going into the Olympics and climbing exactly. being such Perfect an urban example. sport. I mean, yeah, that probably will change the sport in some ways. But I'm like, I'm totally fine if people want to call indoor climbing like it's, you know, it's kind of got its thing. I mean, already right. there's the World Cup and things like that. Like yeah. indoor climbing has already sort of taken a certain direction. Definitely. And like, that's fine. You know, it doesn't affect what what the rest of us do outside. Yeah, I mean, no, agreed. I'll, you know, well, let, let's dive back into some slightly controversial opinions, too, which is. Like I'm similarly, like I grew up, I got into climbing because a climbing gym Oakland opened in Oklahoma city mm-hmm. and like I started going in the end of middle school and high school and stuff. And I just bought freedom of the Hills and my friends and I managed to survive. Um, and not like, I think the first thing I tried to leave outside was like a five eleven like mixed route. And I didn't even, all I had was quick draws cause I didn't know the difference. Um, it was also my first whipper and, um, <laughs> but anyway, so I get very, uh, I, I actually kind of react strongly when you hear like all the people out there now that like there's all these organizations that are about that transition and they're saying like, well, but like this person and this person, they don't have that mentor. Like, you know, this community needs to teach them it. Like it is owed to them to have a mentor to like have instruction and to be showed how. And it's just like, well, I just like bought a book and read it and yeah. like got into it. And like similarly with Alex. So I think there's this illusion that all of us that are really into climbing now had some trad dad like Mike Caldwell that was teaching us everything and like taking us outside. And that's like totally not the case. Like you don't need, you don't need, um, or nor are you owed this instruction that is just going to like show up and put you in a van and like take you outside and teach you everything. I think that culture has informed a lot of people who approach with a different attitude than I had when I was starting where they'll say, oh, I'm going to go to Spain and go sport climbing, even though I'm a new climber, I'll go to Mm -hmm. Thailand and do this. And like, I would never have done Mm -hmm. that. Like my, in my mind back in the day, it was like, well, I just am not there as a climber mm-hmm. and and that's that was like my bad for thinking that way like these people well, I mean, are that's, correct that's, that's how this, i was right? too though yeah i mean you sure. know when i started going on the road it was like just around california yeah. and like you know it's like bigger circles away from my home until eventually i was like wait i can literally go anywhere in the world yeah. like why don't i go somewhere with good rock right instead of freaking joshua tree but some like, people like that. look back on these people and are like what are you doing going to spain like you haven't earned this yet or whatever yeah like, that's not no i know? think that's bullshit i'm like bullshit. climbing is climbing just go somewhere fun and like do the thing yeah it does feel like a watershed moment in climbing yeah climbers are like very friendly i mean you'll be out at the crag and like people will give you tips and point i i guess that would be the caveat is like if you're doing that and you're newer like do be open to suggestions because it is like quite i mean like if i'm an eldo and i see you and you're like doing something totally terrifyingly dangerous don't just like brush me off when i'm like hey you should probably clip yourself into that anchor (laughs) i'm I'm getting more outspoken about that stuff too seeing people in yosemite like i don't want to be douchey and i don't want to 
don't want to mansplain or anything, but I am getting more and more like, so do you know the descent? Let me talk you yeah. through this real quick. I quickly. also don't want to witness yeah. death. Yeah, no, seriously. And actually, that might be it because I, I did actually witness my first death in climbing last year. And uh, I was like, whoa, it was pretty heavy. You know, and just, I mean, things like that, being around more accidents, being around whatever, you're sort of like, yeah, I mean, it's worth maybe feeling slightly uncomfortable to be like, look, maybe you should consider doing this slightly differently. Yeah, it is hard yeah. though, right? Like that's a very gray area and you, I feel super awkward saying yeah. stuff to people Yeah, totally. Sometimes. I mean, I think for me it's easier because most people, um, you know, yeah, I mean, it's probably harder if you're a random dude and they're like, well, who the fuck are you? Yeah, and don't. you're like, well, I don't know. I've just been yeah. climbing 20 <laughs> years. Like, yeah, I'm just a guy. But um, yeah, I think for me it's maybe slightly easier and so yeah, I have a certain authority to speak to that stuff and people are maybe more willing to listen. But in some ways that means I have more of a responsibility to do that too. Right. To like try to make sure that people don't hurt themselves when you see something bad going on. I actually have a really funny anecdote. It was kind of connection, the recognizable deal. But I remember I was like talking to Alex once about, I had never climbed to Yosemite until a couple years ago. Um, and he finally dragged me there and now I've been a couple of times. But I remember once I was like, yeah, I mean, it just like, like it sucks when there's a lot of people on a route. And he's like, oh, you just pass them. And I was like, well, it's like kind of hard, you know, because people get salty about you like trying to climb through them or pass them. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like they're always so friendly. Like they just encourage you to go right by. And I was like, no, they encourage you to climb right by. It's <laughs> not, not entirely true. I actually, uh, so long Serenity Sons once, I had a guy be like, you can't pass. And I was like, I, I, I don't think he noticed that I didn't have a harness or rope on. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, huh, and just climbed right through. Because I was kind of like, I was like, I'm not just going to like hang yeah. off a hand jam next to you at this yeah. anchor for the I next five minutes. Out. Yeah, I mean, well, I wasn't pumping out, but <laughs> no, I was totally. also like, I'm not just going to freaking hang here. I was like, what are you talking about? So I was kind of like, oh, no, it should be fine. Like, don't worry about disagree. it. But I think one of the things with passing, and this is what I always say, is that the key to like passing people is just be friendly. And, well, and also, and yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then do it. Well, no, I was going to say only do it if you can do it without impacting their day. Right. You know, like if you're going to slow them down 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever, then it's like, yeah, that's having a real impact on them. But if you simul over them without them ever having to stop, like if they can continue to do exactly what they're going to do anyway, and you're not putting them in danger, this is obviously different for like mixed routes or ice climbing or like mountain climbing, but like somewhere like Yosemite where there's no rockfall, then, you know, I feel like. Yeah, there's, there's nothing wrong with just going right through. Like, right. you literally haven't changed their day at all. Yeah. And I think most people get upset about that stuff because they don't totally know what's going to happen. Yeah. They're like, oh, you know, like, because it just hasn't happened to them much before. And so you just explain, like, here's what's going to happen. It's totally safe. You do exactly what you're going to do. We're all going to be happy. And they're just like, okay, okay, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, you know, we're passing five parties a day on the nose, and we climb the nose 15 times this season. So it's like I've done a lot of passing in Yosemite. Yeah. And it's like you sort of perfect the like, oh, don't worry. Like, it'll be fine. Have fun. <laughs> See you tomorrow. You know, because you pass them again the next day. I actually had someone get really upset at me for passing in, in the black this, like, earlier this spring. Oh. And I, I, I didn't even pass. I, like, went around them. Yeah. Like, and linked into the route above them, but, like, never affected their climb. But anyways, she... Like, she didn't have time to really get angry at me, but she, like, was, like, yelling at my partner. She's like, it would be different if you were Alex Honnold. And I was like, well, well, fair enough. You know, fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no. exactly. Anyway. So, is it weird to be now maybe the most famous climber on the planet? Like, is, is being recognizable and having that degree of notoriety, like, is that strange? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's slightly strange. I mean, just, like, walking here to the convention center, I had, like, a bunch of interactions, like, on the street, you know, and you're just sort of, like... Huh. And that was, yeah, you no, know, it's a little strange, but thankfully it's, uh, it's risen over time, yeah. you know, and enough time that I can kind of get used to it. Cause I, I sort of remember the very first time someone was like, are you Alex Honnold? You know, I was like, in, I think I was like in, in now burger. So, you know, it's a long time ago. So I was still <laughs> eating beef. And, uh, so that's like, um, you know, and I was like, oh, that's so crazy. This guy knows who I am. And I was like a total tweaker with my hood, all like, um, hiding away. 
but you know over time it's become more of a thing i don't know i mean yeah you just like i think anybody gets used to whatever they get exposed to enough yeah so now it's just like that's just the way it is yeah and i kind of think doing movie promotion for the next several months is is you know gonna take that to a different level (laughs) but yeah we'll see we went a little bit longer than anticipated and had to wrap up quickly for everyone to scatter toward our next meetings Luke and I will be back soon with another episode, but in the meantime, check us out on iTunes and leave us a rating or some feedback. We really, really like hearing from you. And if you like the show and want to spread the word, we'd love it if you told your friends about us or at least stole their phone while they're in the bathroom and subscribed them to the show. Have a great week.